So today I want to continue our conversations we've been having lately regarding the end times. And I'm talking about that in the perspective of that Jesus' parables in Matthew 24 and 25 that we're going to be getting into are talking about the end times. So I think it helps us give a better understanding of the context of what Jesus is going to be speaking about. So today um, we're going to be speaking about the tribulation. And namely, what is the purpose of the tribulation? Um, you know, I find it interesting that Jesus and Paul and all the New Testament writers spoke a lot about the end times. In fact, if other than salvation, that is the most relevant thing, the most often spoke about things that Jesus spoke about was his coming back and what would be the signs of the times of his coming back and what would be the um, conditions of the world and the conditions of people. And if he spoke about that 2,000-some years ago, isn't it important that we study it, that we understand it to the best that we can? But I know that it's a difficult subject. And I know that many people, many churches, many pastors possibly, many people don't like to talk about it. Why is that? Why is it that we don't want to talk about things of the end. Have you ever thought about it? Do you consider it? I just think there's something about human nature that doesn't like to think or deal with things that are inevitable. Maybe we think that if we don't think about it, it's not going to happen. If we don't think about it, if we don't plan on it, it's just not going to happen for us. Well, the reality is that's not true. <laughs> it's going to happen whether we think about it or not. And let me tell you that thinking about end times is not a morbid topic. Thinking about planning for your leaving this world, whether it's through a death or through the rapture, is not something to be avoided. No more than your planning of your retirement leaving your job. I mean, think about what we're doing. We're just making plans for the future, the best that we can. And there's nothing wrong with understanding what the future holds. So as we've talked about already in this service, Pastor Rip mentioned that this world has nothing to offer. In fact, if you go through this life without having a relationship with the Lord, without having a foundation for what you believe, how empty is that? If you don't think you have a future after your last breath, then what's the point of even living? Seriously, think about it. And, and I'm not saying that so, and for, so anyone should end their life. I'm saying that so that we should find Jesus in the midst of our life. So that we should find the source of our joy, the source of our purpose. And so I want to talk about, the reason I talk about the end times is I want us to be prepared as individuals and as the church to be prepared as much as we can about what's ahead. And I wanted to, and I speak it of it that way so that we can be comforted knowing that God has a plan. He's got a plan for your life. No matter what's going on right now in your life, whether you're in a job situation that you don't like, maybe you're looking for a job, maybe you're losing a job, maybe you have health issues in your family, maybe something really bad's going on, or maybe everything is great. 
going on right now. God has a plan in all of it, and it's for your benefit. I want you to know that God never has a plan to hurt you. It may put us through some difficult times. You may be pushing against the wind sometimes, as we talked about at the very beginning of the service. But that's where we hunker down, and we get our head low, and we stay the course. And we don't get pushed off one way or the other. God has a plan. He's very much aware of everything that's going on today. He's very much aware of our political situation. He's very much aware of what's going on in the Middle East. He's very much aware of what's going on in our economy and the gas prices and everything that's going on. God knows it all. He's got a plan in it. And we as the church, we believe, we we hold our head high, and we keep our faith in Christ. And we don't allow ourselves to get distracted by the things of the world that would is not our source anyways. So that's why we talk about the things we talk about, because it's truth and it gives us encouragement. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke, we spoke about the rapture and we spoke about the second coming. And we defined them. What's the difference between the first coming? Which the, there's three comings of Christ, really. The, his birth was his first coming. The rapture is his coming as the groom to take away the bride, the church. And then the second coming is actually when he comes down to earth to create, to do away with evil and to create his thousand-year reign and to begin a whole other phase of godliness in this world. So what we're going to talk about today is the seven-year period between the rapture, the taking away of the church, and his second coming. And we call it the tribulation period. And that's what we're going to talk about today, and we're going to understand the purpose of it. The Holy Spirit, who was, who was given by Jesus to the world on the day of Pentecost, was the beginning of the church. That was the beginning of the time the Holy Spirit came to indwell on the earth. Now, prior to that time, in Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit did have activities on earth, but it was for a season or a particular purpose in a person's life, but he did not dwell on the earth like he, like he dwells on the earth today. We're in, a, we're in the, the age of the Holy Spirit now because the Holy Spirit came. Jesus said, I'm going to pour out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and he will give you power to live and the power to evangelize. And he will be with you and he will be your comforter and your paraclete. We know all that. So the Holy Spirit is in the world today and he's not only in the world to empower us, but his other purpose is, is to restrain evil. We, the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are in partnership with the Holy Spirit to restrain evil from being, to, to, to be unchecked in this world As evil as we see this world to be sometimes, it's not what it's going to be. Believe me, when the Holy Spirit is removed and the tribulation moves into gear, you're gonna we're gonna this world is gonna see trouble like they've never thought. And so as long as the Holy Spirit is here, evil will be restrained. We're told this in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse seven, it says, For the secret power of lawlessness which is the Antichrist, which we spoke about a week ago, the spirit of the Antichrist, right? This, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. When the Holy Spirit is removed from dwelling here on the earth, then that gives the Antichrist and Satan full reign of evil. And if you think it's bad now, this is a walk in the park. 
to what it's going to be in that seven-year period of time called the tribulation. The tribulation in the Bible is never really called out that. It never really says the tribulation or the great tribulation. Those are names that we've given it, but the Bible refers to this period of time as the last days or the latter days of Israel or the days of vengeance or the time of Jacob's trouble or Daniel's 70th week. All those different phrases refer to this seven-year period of time. And Obviously, if you look at these names, at least most of them, they indicate that there are troubled times ahead. So the question that I have then for today is, what is God intending to accomplish in the hard times that are coming? With the wrath of God that is going to be poured out, what's his purpose in doing that? Like we've been talking about, God has a purpose. God has a plan for everything he does. God never leaves anything to chance. He's, he's not a random access God. He is a very planned out, purposeful God. So today, we want to try to understand what is his purpose for the tribulation? What is the purpose for this period of time that is going to be unequaled in human history when it comes to trouble? We like to think that God is a God of tender mercy and love, and long-suffering, and accepting of who we are as people. He knows our weaknesses. We like to think that way. And for the most part, that's exactly what God is. In fact, for all of that, God is all of that. He is nothing short of all long-suffering and all loving and all merciful. But there's another aspect of God. There's another side of God that we must recognize, that God is righteous, and he is the righteous judge. And that he is holy in all counts. That he cannot lie. That he cannot be unfaithful to a promise or a commitment that he's made. That he cannot do anything against his character. What that means is God cannot sin. Therefore, anything in his presence must be holy. Anything that comes into his presence must have the blood of Christ because that is the only thing that gives us the ability to be like God is the blood of Jesus Christ because we are a sinful people and we are made righteous by the blood of Christ. And that gives us the ability to come into the presence of God. Anything short of that might have a knowledge of God, but they don't experience his presence. That's what the world's at. The world might have a knowledge of God, but they don't experience his presence because there's sin there. We must recognize that God loves what he loves and he hates what he hates. And that God hates sin of all forms. It doesn't, I don't care how big or how small it is, God is, cannot be in the presence of sin in, in the sense of having relationship with him. God loves righteousness and everything that's righteous. And so with this very simple definition or understanding of who God is, what is the tribulation period going to be about? How long is it going to last? The tribulation is a seven-year period of time that we talked about, and it's given in Daniel chapter 9. And let's turn that as our text today. Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, beginning at verse 24. 
And we're going to read through uh, verse 27. You can read along with me. It's on the screen. Or you can open your Bible. Stand with me, if you would, as we read God's word. I just think that's a reverent thing to do. Chapter 9, verse 24, it says, A period of 70 weeks of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. Daniel is giving the purpose for what's happening in the rapture, or tribulation, excuse me. He's giving the, the purpose. Verse 25, he says, Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, which is 69 years, the anointed one will be killed appearing to have accomplished nothing, and a ruler will arise who is the Antichrist, whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood, and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. Verse 27, the ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, or for seven years. That's the Antichrist making a treaty for one, for seven years. But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Let's pray. Father, there is a lot of words here. There is a lot for us to try to understand. And I pray, God, that you give us the heart to hear, the wisdom to discern, and, God, that we would be able to apply what you would have us to apply in this time, that we would understand it, we would know what it means, and we would then live it out for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So obviously, there is way too much for us to take the time in the next half an hour or so to, to get into this passage directly. So what I want to talk about is I want to talk about three main purposes of the tribulation. There's three main purposes. The first purpose is to judge the rebellion and to rid the world of evil men. God, a righteous judge, and he's going to do this. The second purpose is to bring Israel to repentance and acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah. And then thirdly, to bring a great end-time revival, to show that God truly does love people. So in all these three purposes, God will establish his supreme authority and his power to reign supremely and sovereignly so that no man can question the authority of who Jesus is. No one will be able to live through this time or experience this time and not understand who Jesus is. God is love, and God proves this over and over. By sending Jesus the first time as a baby, we knew his love as a sacrifice. And those that could accept Christ then are able to be saved from the time that's coming when Jesus comes back as a judge and the wrath of God would be poured out. By Jesus coming the way he came the first time, 
and by him being willing to give up all the splendor of heaven and to be a, a perfect example, a perfect life, to die a, li- a die a death that he didn't deserve to die. I, I hope that you understand. I hope you can see that this, that proves the love of God to us is more than what we can even imagine. And he's calling out for people, to people over and over again, that he wants a, re- a relationship with them. And so when people don't receive that, re- when they don't receive the sacrifice of Christ, and they don't accept the, 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 what God has given to them, by doing this, this, what this does is it proves us to us that God loves us so much that he would give so much for us, and that if we don't accept him, what it does is that it proves that our judgment is just because there's nothing that he's held back. He's given everything that he could give for us to receive him. And if we don't, then no one can say, God didn't give me a chance. God didn't call me. Yes, he did call you. Yes, he did give you a chance. And so now when we get to the judgment of God, we have to look at it and say, it's just. I deserve it. I deserve punishment. I don't deserve grace. But yet he's given it to me. And for those that don't receive the grace that God gives, then they can never look at God and say, God gave this. God sent me to hell. God sent me to punishment. God is punishing me unjustly. No, he's not. If I haven't received Christ, if I'm living my life the way I want to live my life, and if I'm doing things in the face of God evilly, then I deserve justice. Amen? Can we agree with that? Is that a good premise? Okay, then that sets up then what God's first point is. God is coming in the seven-year period to judge the rebellion and rid the world of evil men and to do away with sin. You know what? Maybe we can think of it this way. God's anger, because God does get angry, his anger is compared to a cup is almost running over. I mean, it's, it's, being filling, it's filling up. You know what a cup is like when it gets to the tipping point, gets to the point where it's almost full. Well, God's anger has almost reached the tip of the cup. <laughs> and his nature, though, is, very, is, is to be patient and, and, and to be long-suffering. But when the cup tips and his wrath pours out, God's patience will have finally reached the limit. God's anger will finally consume the world in what the Bible calls the great day of the Lord. And that's the first purpose that involves punishment for the sin of the world. However, God, we know, is a promise keeper. And we know that everything that he tells us that he will do, he will do. And even in his righteous judgment, he is patiently waiting and desiring for all men to come to repentance. He says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Even as this time of judgment, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, according to Peter, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So even in his judgment, he's still calling out for people to repent. In God's outpouring of wrath through the tribulation, he's exercising his divine judgment against unrepentant sinners. See, God himself hates sin, as we've already talked about. 
He's a righteous judge. He can't stand anything that isn't righteous to be in his presence. So in this tribulation period or this time that is God's punishment being unveiled on humanity, many people will look at this and say, well, that's not fair. God is not a good judge. But the reality is, if I'm going to go into a court of law, and if I have a judge that looks at me and doesn't uphold the law, but bends it for me, even if it's in my favor, is he a good judge or a bad judge? He's a bad judge. A judge doesn't have the ability to make the law. The judge doesn't make the law. The judge upholds the law, right? God set the rules. God made the law. And now he's given Jesus the authority to judge according to the law. And now we have to recognize that Jesus can't make the law. He can't bend it here. He can't bend the rules for you or me, even though I think they should. <laughs> even though I think God should, and I think many people think that for whatever reason, God will bend the rules for them a little bit. They don't deserve the punishment because they're special. Do you ever feel special in that way? Do you ever feel like God should give you a break because he, you didn't really mean to do that or you didn't really mean to think that, whatever? The, here's the thing. If God is going to be just, he has to uphold the laws that are given in his word. And ignorance is not bliss. We're given God's word and we must read it. We must teach it. We must believe it. We must proclaim it. We shouldn't twist it. We can't twist it. I don't have the right. And that's the thing that I fear the most. Someday I'm going to stand before God and, and, and as a pastor and Pastor Rip, Pastor Leland and every other pastor or teacher here, if you're a teacher, recognize you're going to be judged more severely because if you've bent the law in any way, shape, or form to make people happy, God's going to say, who gave you the right? Who gave you the right? I said these things. I called you to say what I said. And because you were afraid of people, you feared people more than you feared me. I don't want God to say that to me. And I don't know that you want God to say that. So therefore, we must speak the word, speak it in love, but we must speak it. We know that God's word says that there's a day coming when everyone will have to give an account for their actions. Luke instructed the early church this way, and this is what he said in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31, Luke says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, who is Jesus. God has appointed Jesus to be the judge. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead to be our salvation and also to be the judge of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, of Jesus, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things that done while in the body, whether good or bad. Peter describes the tribulation period, period by, 
by comparing it to the time of Noah. And we're going to talk about this later in another message. As in the days of Noah, then the rapture happens. We'll talk about that. We're setting this all up, right, for this. That when God judged the ungodly people living in that day with a flood that destroyed them, all except Noah and his family, this is what Peter says about that. Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Then he, God, used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment, the tribulation, when ungodly people will be destroyed. So through God's wrath being poured out through the tribulation, it will bring the unrepentant and the unbelieving to their knees. Every man will bend their knee to Jesus. Every person, and no matter how stubborn, no matter how evil they are, at some point in time, they will bend their knee to Christ. Now, isn't it only wise for us that know that to bend our knee willingly today? Doesn't it only make sense for us to jump on our knees as quickly as we can and say, I believe in you, Jesus, and I've accepted you as my Savior so that I don't have to experience you as my judge? of unrighteousness. Now, he will judge us of things good or bad. That's a, that's a judgment of rewards in heaven. There's that judgment coming for the Christian. But I'm talking about this in, in the context of the tribulation as the judgment of evil, of life and death. As a loving and a righteous God, God is using holiness to bring the lost to a saving knowledge of himself. Again, God's purpose is always redemption. His purpose is to redeem. His purpose really isn't to punish. That doesn't give God joy. I mean, as a parent, none of us like to punish our children, did we? No, we don't punish our children because we don't love them. We punish our children because we love them, because we're trying to redeem them. We're trying to create a, a life structure in them that would give them a good life. And that's what Jesus is about as well. That's what God is about as well, that his, his purpose of judgment is always about redemption. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But now I want to talk about the second purpose. The second purpose of the tribulation is to bring Israel to repentance and acceptance of Jesus as the true Messiah. Now we know the Bible often speaks of Israel being God's chosen people. He has a special place for the, for the nation of Israel. But they were a stiff-necked people. And you, you read through the Old Testament and you see example after example of how God has called them and wooed them and, and tried to cherish them and call them special and they just put the old stiff arm out to God numerous times, rebelled and rejected God numerous times, but God clearly has called them back. And, and the reality of it all today is God's eternal time clock is all based on Israel. It's based on the Jewish feast and, and all the, the, the special times appointed for Israel, even to the point of the rapture and the second coming is all based on Israel. That's why we need to hold them special. That's why we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We need to pray for Israel. See, in, J- in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders and the political leaders which made up the nation of Israel... They rejected Jesus. And that means the whole nation rejected Christ as the Messiah. He was a good teacher. 
He was a prophet, but he wasn't God's son. He wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. And, and that's been that way since Jesus came on earth. And the Jewish nation has continued to reject him. As I read earlier, that the Antichrist is going to make a peace treaty with Israel for the first seven, for seven years in the tribulation period. Therefore, the first three and a half years of the tribulation for the Jews will be relatively peaceful because he's established a peace treaty with them. He's allowed the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, to have their sacrifices. They're going to build the third temple. On the, on the Mount of Olives, or not on the Mount of, but on the Temple Mount, and they will institute Jewish sacrifices again, and the Antichrist will be a Messiah-type figure for the Jewish nation for the first three and a half years. But verse 27 of our text, this is what he says, the, the, the ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. But once the Antichrist has established this, and he's using this also to establish a, a hold on the world as a global leader. He will be the world leader with a one-world government, a one-world currency, a one-world religion. Once that's established, then all hell breaks out because once he breaks the peace treaty with Israel, life changes for Israel and for all the rest of us. Now, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, there is going to be a lot of, uh, well, there's the first seven seal judgments are being poured out. So it's going to be a horrific time on earth. I mean, it's starting right away. But Israel will be protected for that little bit of a time, and so it's going to be relatively peaceful. But then, it, but then Revelation chapter 13, verse 7 and 8 say this. And the beast, who was the Antichrist, was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belonged to this world worshipped the beast. Remember, the, the Holy Spirit has been removed. He is no longer a, a, a force that can hold the evil back. So now the Antichrist, who is empowered by Satan, is, on, is fully unleashed. The holy people in this verse... This is not speaking about the church. Very important that we recognize that the holy people are not the church. The church has already been raptured. It's already been taken away. It's already been taken out of the world because we are the bride of Christ. And now we're celebrating the wedding celebration in heaven for this period of time. The holy people that is being referred to in Revelation 13, 7 and 8 are those that were not that they were not saved, they were left behind in the rapture, but yet in the tribulation period, they have come to have a saving knowledge of Christ. And now the Antichrist is fully against them, like he will be fully against Israel in the second half of the tribulation. Midway through the tribulation, the Antichrist breaks the peace treaty he has with Israel, and then everything changes. What little peace Israel enjoyed is gone, and this begins the second half of this period, and we refer to that as the Great Tribulation. Verse 27 of our text says that the ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, but after the, but every half this time, or three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler 
is finally poured out on him or until the second coming of Christ and he puts an end. Christ will put an end to the Antichrist, but not yet. There's a period of time that has to happen first. Paul describes this breaking of the treaty in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now when this happens, this pops the bubble for Israel. All right, they're going to see now the Antichrist, who he really is. Up to this point, he's been kind of a Messiah type of an individual because he's given them peace, he's promised them all the things that they wanted. And now, though, when he sets himself up and he goes into the temple and he offers sacrifices, if he does offer, I've heard maybe of a pig, of an unclean animal, or just sets himself up into the temple and says, hey, guys, guess what? I'm God. And he will have power to do that through the power of Satan, through the deceptive miracles and powers of Satan. He will be able to deceive the world to think that he is God. And he will set himself up in the temple as God. And Israel will finally see what they're up against. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 and 16. Jesus says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And skipping down to verse 21. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Tough times. (laughs) This is going to be an unparalleled evil in the world, and not just evil, but God's wrath is going to be poured out now, because this isn't Satan's wrath. This is God's wrath. We need to know what God's doing here. God is pouring out his wrath on the Antichrist and on the beast and all those that reject him. The prophet Jeremiah foretells this day, and he calls it Jacob's trouble. Yet he gives a promise that through Jacob, who is Jacob? Jacob is Israel, right? Jacob was renamed Israel, that God will also save Israel when they recognize him as the Messiah. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he, who is he, Jacob, who is Jacob, Israel, will be saved out of it. You see, as horrific as this is, this all has to happen in order to break the pride, that stiff-necked nature of Israel so that they would eventually bend their knee to who Jesus is. It doesn't have to be this way if they would have done it earlier, but they didn't and they wouldn't. So this is the way that God will bend their knee. And then with that, then Christ can come in the second coming where his feet will touch the Mount of Olives, and then he will destroy the Antichrist and establish his thousand-year millennial reign. 
So that's the second purpose of the, of the tribulation is to, is to bring Israel to repentance. That's important that we need to understand that. Then finally, the third thing that I want to talk about today is to bring a great end-time revival that will bring many of the Gentile believers or people during the tribulation. And these will be called tribulation saints. It's interesting in the terminology here that those that are saved prior to the rapture of the church and those that are after the rapture of the church. The term for the, save, for, for the people before the rapture, they're called the bride of Christ. Those that are saved after the rapture and in the tribulation period, they're called the tribulation saints. Which classification sounds more appealing? <laughs> Which would you rather be? Would you rather be a bride or would you rather be a martyred tribulation saint? You see, we right now are in the time where we are the bride of Christ. We're putting on our wedding garments, right? We're putting on our wedding clothes, and we're making plans for the wedding day. But there's coming a time when that time will be over. When the church is raptured out of the, out of the world and the Holy Spirit is taken out with the church, then anyone that gets saved thereafter will not be part of the church because the church is already gone they will then be the tribulation saints. Revelation 13, 7. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. That's why we're not here. Because Satan will never conquer the church. Jesus said, I have the, the, the gates of hell and, and, and my church will be built and, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We, the church, will not be conquered by Satan, but the tribulation saints will be. And they will be conquered to the point that they will have to die for their faith. The tribulation saints will serve the Lord amid desperate surroundings. And those that are faithful to the end, many of those believers will die for their faith. Many of them will be beheaded with a guillotine. That seems to be the... The, the, the way of death of the Eastern, <laughs> the Eastern religion, the guillotine, beheading. Revelation 12, 11, it says that they triumphed over him. This is the tribulation saints. They triumphed over Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, we live for Christ today to an abundant life. We live, we have the ability to live victoriously over sin and to be peaceful, loving people, and to have joy in our hearts, and to celebrate, and to worship God, and to enjoy the fullness of God. That's what his promise is today. And then we have the rapture to look forward to. So we have nothing really bad to look forward to in our lives. We are God's chosen, like Israel, we're chosen because we are redeemed as the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. But for, for those that are saved after the tribulation begins, they're not saved to that. They're saved to death. That's why we need to do everything we can to accept Jesus now and not allow ourselves to be deceived by the enemy. So here's a question. If the church and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit has been taken out of the world in the rapture, then how will these people hear the gospel message? How will this happen? I think it's a good question. 
I think there are several possible answers. The first answer is the Bible. Think how many copies of the Bible that will be left in people's homes. How many copies of the Bible do you have in your home? How many copies of the Bible are in this church? You see, when we're gone, people are going to come into our homes. They're going to come into this church. There are going to be many copies of the Bible around that will be left. And so here's what you could do. Take your Bible and write in it the plan of salvation, the first page, so that whoever gets your Bible after you're gone will have the plan of salvation written right there. They don't have the ability. They, they may not have the time or the knowledge to search it out, so write it out for them. Right? There also will be other forms of media, other books. You know, this book right here, Where Are the Missing People? From Jimmy Evans. This is why we have sent this, we've, we've given it, we'd give copies to you to have in your home so that those that come after the rapture happens, they see, all right, this is where I'm at in, in time. And this is what I need to do to be saved. So there are good things to do. The Bible and other forms of media will be available. There also will be two witnesses that will speak the gospel message for three and a half years on the Temple Mount. And they will be protected by God so that the Antichrist has no power over them. Two witnesses that will um, come down from heaven and they will be able to speak the gospel message and anything that comes against them, nothing can hurt them, nothing can kill them. They can, they can kill people with their tongue. They can, they can keep uh, rain from falling on the land. They can do, they're, they're given all of God's power and they're given there to be a testimony and a witness for Christ. Revelations chapter 11, verses 3 and 5. And he says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during these 1260 days, which is three and a half years. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouth and consumes their enemies. The Bible says that these two individuals will prophesy for three and a half years, and then they will be killed. They will perform many miracles. They will, they will prove God's power through their life. And then the Antichrist in the three, at that three-and-a-half-year mark will be able to kill the witnesses, and they will lay dead in the streets of Jerusalem for three-and-a-half days. And then at that time, the world will celebrate them. They will give gifts to each other because these prophets who have been given this world just all kinds of problems will be gone, and they'll celebrate their deaths. Until after three and a half years, I'm sorry, three and a half days of laying in the streets dead, God will raise them back up to life and they'll call them back up to heaven and they'll be resurrected and they'll, they'll send to heaven. Again, a great sign of God's power. And then in addition to that, there will be 144,000 Jewish missionaries that will be called from 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. These people today are probably alive. They probably don't have a relationship with Christ today. They will receive Christ after the rapture. Otherwise, they would have gone up in the rapture. If they're saved, they would have gone with the church because Jewish people that are saved today are part of the church today. But those that are going to be of this 144,000 will supernaturally, God will supernaturally save these people and they will be missionaries that will go throughout, throughout the earth primarily to the Jewish nations. And they, again, will be protected from the Antichrist and they will be able to um, witness. Revelation chapter 7 and 4, it says, And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. 
And you could go re- finish reading that chapter, and it would identify there's 12,000 from this tribe and this tribe and this tribe and this tribe, and it identifies all the tribes. I don't have time to do that today. And this is where we see the great revival that will be, that will be, um, that will be enjoyed, if you can say enjoyed, in that time. And there will be a, gr- a crowd too great to count. This is the thing. See, when I was a kid growing up, I didn't realize this. I wasn't taught this. I was taught, you missed the rapture, you're done. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, you don't want to miss the rapture. You want to be caught up in the rapture. But God's grace, again, his love for people is so strong that he doesn't want anyone to perish. So he's going to give them multiple, t- multiple opportunities. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. It says, after this, this is John the Revelator speaking, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every tribe, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the, th- before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. Verse 10, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And then skip down to verse 13. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these who are clothed in white? And where did they come from? And John said, I said unto him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then the angel said to John, These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and are made white. So this 144,000 missionaries are going to create a great revival. So this great end-time revival that's being talked about, it probably is not going to happen before the rapture. In fact, before the rapture, as we saw last week in the spirit of the Antichrist, we're going to have a great falling away. There's, the apostasy must happen first, right? So this great revival is going to come, but it's probably going to come after the rapture and into the tribulation time by these 144,000 witnesses, and there will be a great revival, but they will be persecuted like we've never dreamed of. All right? There's one other form of God's... Um, missionary, and this is the gospel angel, okay? It says that there will, John also saw an angel flying to all parts of the earth, declaring the gospel of the good news to all peoples in the earth. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. It says, and I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he cries out, fear God, give glory to him. For the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. You see, it also says that the end won't come until every nation has been evangelized. Well, again, maybe a misrepresentation of that is we thought maybe the rapture wouldn't come until we evangelize throughout the world. And, you know, we are doing a good job evangelizing throughout the world. But I think this is really how it's going to happen. Because there's going to be an angel that's going to supernaturally go through all the nations. And every person alive at that time will hear the gospel message. Again, no one will have an excuse they didn't hear. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached through the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. The end is not the rapture. The end is the second coming. Does that make sense? So God will supernaturally make sure that every man and woman will have the opportunity to accept Christ. So we 
can look at this. Even though we are living today in the age of grace, in the era of grace, God's grace is still amazing. The great day of trouble, the tribulation time, will also be a great day of God's final grace. He will give those that will receive him an opportunity to receive him then, maybe martyred for it, but they'll have an opportunity and there'll be a great revival. Jackie, would you come, please? So to summarize this seven-year period of time that we've spoken about in the last 35, 40 minutes, the purpose of the tribulation is for God's righteous justice to be released into an unrighteous world and to redeem as many as would receive him. That's the encouragement here. God doesn't punish just for the sake of punishing. Like I've said before, he's a loving God. He's a loving father. And he puts everything, to, he puts everything in that perspective of redemption. God is doing everything he can to redeem people. And the sad part, though, is that even those in the tribulation period that will, have, will be feeling the wrath of God, even some people, and maybe many, I don't know, will still be so hardened they'll reject him. That's why justice is just. That's why God's justice system is right. Because if, he, if, if you've given an opportunity and taken the opportunity to receive God's grace, he'll extend it to you. But if you reject it, there is no, reje- there is no forgiveness for that. So what do we take away from this? God's judgment, God's judgment is not bad, but it proves that the heart of man is. It proves the fact that God loves us, his justice is there for us, and if I don't reject it, it's not God's fault. It's my heart. It's the it's the heart of a man. The second takeaway is that God's love for Israel will result in a national leadership that at one time rejected him, but now will receive him. And there'll be a great, there will be a, a remnant, maybe a third of Jewish people left. Two-thirds will die, probably. A third will receive him and call him king, and that will bring the end. And then will be the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, which is a whole other topic we can talk about later. And then the third thing that to take away is even though the church, the bride, is removed from the earth, there will be a great revival and untold numbers of tribulation saints will be saved, most of them beheaded. But they're still going to be in heaven. So today, what do we do with this? Today, while we are the bride of Christ, this is our day of redemption. This is our day of evangelizing. This is the time that we should be doing everything we can do to extend the mercy of God to all people that we can. Whether you do it on media, if you do it on Facebook, if you do it face-to-face, one-on-one, if you do it in your family context with family members, live for Jesus so that no one can use you as a reason not to live for Jesus. Live your life righteously before them. Live on fire for Christ. 
live with a purpose and a passion that we know what's coming and we're not afraid of it, we're encouraged by it. Live with joy in your heart knowing that God has got a great, a great future for all of us here today. Amen? Be encouraged. The Bible says when you start to see these things happen, look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. That's where we're at today. Look up, but keep working hard in the vineyard. Don't give up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your word today. We thank you, Lord, for your your grace that you've extended to us over and over and over again. And I pray, God, that we would receive it. And I pray that we would not just receive it, but I pray we would live in it. And that we would be full of the mercy and grace of God. And we would have joy in our heart, even when this world is seemingly spinning out of control, that we would not be phased by it. And we could be, people could look at us and say, what's different about you? Why do you have a sense of peace in your life when the economy is going down the tubes? And we know it's going to. We know it's not going to get better. But God, we know that you still have it in control. And this is why we're learning these things. This is why we're studying this, because it gives us our foundation of who we are in Christ, that we have no fear. We're not going to be conquered. Greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world, Jesus says. And that is speaking to us, the church, today. So I pray, God, that you would just flow through us. Let your Holy Spirit's power just continue to flow in us and through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing this song with a little bit of pep. And let's speed it up a little bit. And let's leave with some joy in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.
Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today. Lord, as we go out of this world, out of this church, out of this sense of, out of this place of light and go out into the place of darkness, God, that we would go out with joy in our heart. Lord, that we don't want to look at these messages as, as anything but uplifting and giving us information so that we can walk joyfully with a foundation of God's grace and his mercy and his love and assurance of hope that we have a salvation that is assured that nothing can take away. No power on earth can take away our salvation. We, give, we live for you when we build a life upon you. So God, as we go out, I pray that we would go out in an army of joyful warriors today, knowing that we have a plan that is for our good, a redemption that's already assured us, and that we could go out and bring this to other people, and they would see the joy of the Lord in our hearts today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed. Enjoy your day today. Happy 4th of July.